Good Sunday to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Here we are now into part two of the battle of provincial protest becoming a world war in Paul Revere's ride, written by David Hackett Fisher. You know, sometimes it's best to, uh, d- to discuss something in two parts. For one, there's a time constraint, and two, when you do something in a two-part series, it does make uh, the, the audience more engaged. So, therefore, when there's a two-part series on something, think of it as something that uh, can be to your advantage. And know that while, yes, you could try discussing it all in one segment, the time constraint can also be another factor to where you should realize that, okay, let's do it in two versus one. So that's why I think it's better for me to discuss this particular part into a two-part series. And who knows, there could be another two-part theme to this um, topic on Paul Revere's ride before it's all said and done with. But I don't think that's a bad thing either. But nonetheless, thanks once again to all of you, my fellow 101 listeners, who have been such uh, avid supporters of listening to my podcasts, but who have also just taken a strong interest in the topics that I've uh, discussed since uh, first being on the air uh, from June of last year. And it is hard to believe that it's almost coming up on one year. I do feel like in many ways I've been doing this podcasting a lot longer than almost a year, but when you um, when you have a lot of uh, passion and um, interest for something like this, it does seem like it can be longer than a year's time. So here we are um, discussing now part two of a provincial protest becoming a world, world war. What uh, battle are we talking about, folks? Was it uh, Concord? Was it um, or Lexington? Well, the beginning was Lexington in the early morning of uh, April 19, 1775. But now we're on to Concord. And we're still there. And I'm sure that some of you also are wondering, what about the men who survived at Lexington under Captain John Parker's militia unit or militia regiment, let alone? Are they going to um, make their way to Concord? We'll find out. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's get ready for part two. Our first uh, question is going to be the following. Did the death of a dying British regular, which we learned about from the previous podcast episode, whom was attacked by an unknown American um, person, Along with the false rumors of Americans torturing British soldiers, did all of that have a deep, profound impact on Colonel Francis Smith's ability to plan properly? Yes. Once the British regulars had arrived back to Concord Center, Colonel Smith held the troops there for 30 minutes without any solid explanation. I'm beginning to think that perhaps Colonel Smith himself was so, what do you call it, was so um, blown away by what he had already um, encountered at Concord. He probably didn't realize that that the overall number of forces at Concord alone would have not been just so much larger than Lexington, but the forces at Concord were a step above Lexington, but that these forces were not only were not afraid to go head-to-toe with the might, mightiest empire, but that they knew how to engage in warfare. I think it's also fair to say that Colonel Smith simply did not realize just how many places his own men could have been attacked. He was so accustomed, especially in England, fighting European-style warfare where soldiers would go head-to-toe out on an open battlefield where it would only be a matter of, say, minutes or, or maybe at an hour at most before victory really was determined. But what Colonel Smith simply did not 
understand was the true layout to the land before him. And we're going to, um, you know, talk more about that uh, here shortly. But I can see how for about 30 minutes, the shock is so big to where it affects all levels of Colonel Smith's um, military regiments, or I should say the regiment or brigades that he's in charge of. You know, the communication from top to bottom, while, yes, relaying information to your top-level officials may be a good idea, but when you don't start from the bottom and then work your way to the top, there are negative repercussions that can occur. And if there is one thing that has been beneficial to the American side is that communication from bottom to top. So just before 12 o'clock on April the 19th, Colonel Smith finally modifies, he modifies to the best of his ability, broken units from the North Bridge, or I should say the North Bridge aftermath, into other companies whom either had not seen action or had minimal, less, what I mean by minimal here is less casualties or wounded troops. So he's doing the best he can and you got, and if you're on the side of the British, you know, you may not have liked the fact that he um, had to defuse the situation the way he did at Lexington, but somebody had to do that. If it weren't for him, uh, that whole army would have kept on uh, firing at um, militiamen to where the casualties would have been greater than, say, eight. But yes, if you are Colonel Smith, you, you've got to um, plan very quickly. And perhaps within that 30-minute time span, he was trying to think to himself, hey, how am I going to um, reorganize what I've got here so that we can still send a message to the, um, to the militiamen that, hey, we're not going to go down without a fight? Here's another question to think about. Were uh, Colonel Smith's forces planning to retreat back to Boston is that true or false? The answer is true. And how many miles is it each way from Concord to Boston and vice versa? I'll give you a number. Is it choice A being 10 miles? Choice um, B, 25? Or choice C, 20? The answer is choice C, 20 miles. So, yes, when he... Once the British regulars had arrived back to Concord Center, I think for Colonel Smith, it was, you know, yes, one could say that he was trying to, um, you know, we could say that perhaps maybe he was trying to um, reorganize the troops to see if they would be willing to uh, engage in some other skirmishes with the militiamen, but it turns out that it's the opposite. Uh, Colonel Smith is planning a retreat back to Boston. He doesn't want to take any chances on losing any more men by means of being uh, dead or wounded. So, where are they going to um, leave after Concord Center? They have to go through a place called Merriam's Corner. And that's my next question to you all. What is unique about Merriam's Corner? And in case any of you all are wondering how Merriam is spelled, it's M-E-R-I-A-M. For starters, it's a vital road junction where multiple country lanes came together. You know, they, they come in to get together from whether it's from the north or the south, east, west. And then you have a highway that crosses, a, that crossed a bridge over a stream. So, when, of course, when we think of highways, we often think of modern day highways. But let's keep in mind, back in 1775, there is no Interstate uh, 95. After all, 95 does go into Boston, Massachusetts. But Merriam's Corner has multiple country lanes you know, from all directions and a highway. And it's probably fair to say that this highway was probably a two-lane highway, one going in one direction, one in the opposite. That's my best interpretation of, of what the highway could have looked like. We do know that it was a dirt road at best. Um, we don't have anything called asphalt that will appear until much later on, um, year, years from years afterward, after 1775. 
So the British are making their way along Miriam's Corner, and it, which is probably about a mile or two from Concord Center. So everything's going just fine with this uh, retreat. But secondly, on this day, April 19, 1775, many militia and Minutemen forces were making their way onto these roads. So if, if many of your militiamen, along with Minutemen, that is, you know, the soldiers who are ready to fight at a moment's notice, are marching along the same roads, is it very well possible that there could be another skirmish or a a battle or two. Oh, anything's possible. But of course, the British don't know. They're just going along as best as they can with the hopes that they don't have any more um, sufferings to endure on this day. Where are the um, Minutemen and uh, militia forces coming from? They're coming uh, most notably from places just north of Boston, like Kelmsford, Reading, and Billerica, but at the same time, you have men coming from Tuke, from Tewksbury, who marched twenty miles since two a.m. That's a lot of miles to be marching in that time span. But we also have to remember there are no vehicles at this time to get you there faster. But hey, it is a good idea to march in the middle of night than to start marching during the middle of the morning or afternoon because you would become more uh, susceptible to the enemy. And how so? Because if you're trying to avoid being captured, you're better off going in the night when there are not as many people out. Whereas in the daytime, you would be more likely to become a sitting duck. That's just my interpretation of it. But uh, but yes, you have men from Tewksbury who march tw who've been marching 20 miles since 2 a.m., then you have militia companies coming as far south, uh, 15 miles south from Sudbury and Framingham. And with all of these uh, forces congregating, or not so much, were soon to congregate, that is, but they're coming from the north and the south. How many uh, forces, or what, what I should say is, what would, you, what would you think is now the total number of American forces? Is it... A less than a thousand or more than a thousand? It's more than a thousand. That's more than what British Colonel Francis Smith had. So, he, I'm gonna, I'd feel very comfortable to say that Colonel Francis Smith and whatever amount of men whom have not been physically um, injured or wounded, who are still in shape to fight, but yet here they are retreating. You just wonder uh, what the chances are that here you've got soldiers crossing in opposite directions. They may not be on the same highway, but they're going to be in the same vicinity to where something is going to take place. We do know that roughly uh, six colonels in the Massachusetts militia took a leading part at Merriam's Corner. Eight militia companies were Eight militia companies, I should say, formed a line running east from Merriam Farmhouse, whereas other militia units found cover in fields or farm buildings. So, you know, it's best not to concentrate all your forces in one spot. Because after all, if you want to catch the enemy off guard, you're going to have to um, disperse military units from different directions they will still need to be nearby, but if you put everybody in one in one spot, there's no guarantee that your forces will come out as victorious. This is where the beauty of guerrilla-style warfare can come into play and will come into play, and in that it's irregular. It's for one, it's irregular style of fighting. It's not traditional, but you you send your forces out, you fire upon the enemy, then you fall back, and depending on what kind of plan you've devised, you could bring out another five or ten men whom can fire upon the enemy. In other words, lead the enemy into a chase to where the longer the um, surprise attacks go on and the enemy keeps digging, digging themselves a hole to where the further they go into the woods, perhaps the less likely they might come out alive. 
Now, right after British regulars had approached Miriam's corner, shots rang out from both sides, with nobody being directly hit. But when American forces fired on the second attempt, the results were precise to where two regulars fell dead and another officer got wounded. Okay, you know, two regulars falling dead and an officer getting wounded, it doesn't seem like much, but remember, even the smallest number of um, casualties or woundings can add up over time. And it does throw the enemy into, um, into a state of confusion that will only grow worse with um, time. We'll continue to talk about Miriam's Corner, but I'm also going to mention uh, some other unique um, spots along um, Concord. Why is Brooks Hill important? For one, American militia forces assembled in close formation on high ground, but it was at Brooks Hill where American militia officers knew they had found a perfect opportunity to strike directly at the British. And it's not traditional, folks. Yes, you could say it's guerrilla, but even guerrilla warfare alone involves ambushes. And this is what it's going to be, folks, an ambush, a surprise attack. Despite being visible in the woods, the Brit now I should say this, British uh, forces did catch a part of the uh, militia regiment or regiments in the woods. In other words, they saw them as being visible targets. The militia saw this too. But somehow they were able to hold their ground, so they were fired upon. And just because the one side fires upon the other first, it doesn't always mean that their um, targets are going to be met on. Sometimes people fire out of, um, what do you call it, they're, they're rushed into their fire. And when they do that, the volleys will go opposite that is, they'll go well above the intended target. So you have to remember that, you know, people are seeing one another very quickly to where sometimes they'll, when they fire, they just want to see if they can test the opposition's waters to where the opposition will be out of um, line and not uh, conduct, say, a proper retreat. It's all about uh, trying to catch... It's all about who can catch who off guard first. But, despite being visible in the woods, militia forces do hold their ground and return fire to where Colonel Smith's forces were met with heavy volleys. And what I mean by a volley, folks, is that you have a group of soldiers next to one another to where when they fire, their, their um, fire from their muskets or rifles, they're their shots will be accurate enough to where two or three soldiers from the opposition side out of, say, 10 or 15 in the front line might get knocked down right away. If everybody's firing from, if they're not all lined up, they may not be lined up 100% in perfect symmetrical form, but if they're not, but if they're lined up to where there is still a good line, then you get a better volley. But if it's the opposite, then, um, then, the chances of getting a good volley in terms of knocking the enemy down is very slim. So, yes, Colonel Smith's forces were met with heavy volleys of fire, most notably from the Framingham and Sudbury men, whereas on the north side of the road, a.k.a. Merriam's Corner, men from Bedford, Kelmsford, Billerica, and Reading fired shots from rough pastures and tree lines. There again, folks, it's good to split up your militia units so that... For one, you know, you don't want to have all your men in one uh, place, but by splitting them up in different sections, it throws the enemy off guard so bad to where they simply do not know what's coming at them. The ambush ensued at a place called Tanner's Brook in the midst of a British retreat where another sharp turn allowed for the next wave of, of militia insurgents from Woburn, which is north of Boston. This allowed the insurgents from Woburn to fire upon a battered enemy. As I said just a moment ago, I say it again, this battered enemy simply did not know what was coming at them. I tell you, the mosquitoes 
are are something else. I mean, I'm not talking live insects, people. I'm, what I mean by mosquitoes here are militia forces that are everywhere. They may not be visible to the elephant's eye, the elephant being the British Empire, but the elephant just cannot move as quick as the mosquitoes can. Mosquitoes can mobilize faster, whereas elephants... Elephants, it would take longer to mobilize. And remember the communication part, bottom to top? Well, for mosquitoes to mobilize, it's better for them to start from the bottom to the top. It's better for them to start at the bottom and then work their way to the top. An elephant being such a, um, a large dominant figure, the elephant, communication top to bottom. As I said before, I could say it again, that communication piece has really been uh, vital to the Patriots. Could it have been vital to the um, British? I, yes, but I, I do believe that this uh, communication system has been um, very irrelevant and it's already starting to show now. Let's talk about another um, figure here. He's not up there with, say, um, George Washington, I don't think, but but we're still going to give him uh, the recognition that he deserves. Who is Major Loami Bald Baldwin? I'll say that again, Loami Baldwin. He is a major. He is a field grade American uh, militia officer whom led three companies from Woburn, which took up positions around the north side of the highway, A.K.A. Merriam's Corner where his forces, joined by company units from Reading, per the opposite roadside, launched a deadly ambush attack against British regulars, which included hitting every officer of the 5th Light Infantry foot except one. You know, for the longest time, European-style warfare did not um, involve um, firing upon, upon officers. The British, in particular, frowned upon the enemy firing upon officers because it was just seen as an ungentlemanly-like thing to do. Warfare, when warfare was conducted, it meant that the soldiers from both sides were the ones that needed to be firing upon each other. Leave the officers out of it. You know, um, I can say, though, that when it comes to guerrilla-style fighting of war, or guerrilla warfare style, there are no uh, rules for whom is to be uh, fired upon and whom isn't. And when you think about how the people of Massachusetts had been involved in four previous wars, with the most recent one being the French and Indian War, and of course all four of those wars, they had been on the side of the British, but how things had changed so profoundly since um, the end of the French and Indian War you know, I think it's probably just fair to say that, hey, you know, we've been treated so roughly for so long that we really don't care now about the rules of war. We're going to show you all, the mighty elephant, or a.k.a. the British Empire, that, hey, not only are we not afraid to go head-to-toe with you all, but if it's going to mean taking out high-level um, military people, like, you know, high-ranking officers... We're not afraid to do it. We're not, we're not rabble in your eyes. We're not, we may be rebels, but we are rebels who know how to fight. We know how to clean our muskets and rifles. We know how to assemble them. We may not be well-dressed, but we know how to fight. And we're not afraid of taking anybody out. So yes, for the British, um, they see this as a um, cardinal sin, but at the same time, <laughs> there's really little they can do. And the, re the grim reality is that they are getting a bad taste of their own medicine. Now, the regulars fought back hard against militia ambushes, but as the road came to another sharp bend or curve, militia forces coming from the east and the north arrived to where regulars would once again get caught off guard. The confines of fighting along an open road terrain given with Miriam's Corner, 
would lead to 30 British soldiers either being dead or wounded, while the American forces lost just four men. 30, um, you know, 30 is a pretty high number. There again, it may not seem as high perhaps to some of you all, but when 30 British soldiers, let's say 20 of them were dead and 10 are wounded, that's, that's a big loss right there because you've got to make up now for 30 people who are no longer alive or more than half of them are wounded to where, you know, you've got to come up with some replacements now. So this um, curve, this sharp, um, what we call a bend or curve in the road, it sounds like a uh, curve that uh, once you take it, you don't know what might come up from behind or in front of you. So the reason why um, Lawami Baldwin, or rather I should say Major Lawami Baldwin, is so um, essential, it's not because so much for his leadership, but he's the one that nicknamed Miriam's Corner the Bloody Curve. The Bloody Curve was a series of engagements at two sharp turnings in the highway on wooded terrain. So regardless of what direction the British soldiers were going in terms of trying to make their escape or their retreat back to Boston, they would be met with uh, mosquitoes, meaning the militia, and the militia would be the ones to um, launch their deadly ambush attacks to where the regulars simply were just beside themselves. They didn't know what was going to come next. I mean, think about it. This is a, a game of not, this is not hide-and-go-seek, folks. This is a game of uh, where survival of the fittest is already showing, and the American militia forces right now are winning this battle of what we call survival of the fittest. So as the road, a.k.a. Miriam's Corner, curved southward, militia Companies from Bedford, Woburn, and Billerica joined in the fighting. But where did they go about taking cover? Okay. I know it's often easy to assume that when battles are conducted, they're just out there and the fighting is in an open battlefield terrain or it's in the woods. But we should remind ourselves that, hey, there are some other uh, ways to go about taking cover. Sure, you can take cover under... Um, under um, what I call like maybe like a rock wall or um, under, you know, under some logs, for example, depending on how big the log pile may be. I mean, the bottom line is there are, are or hide behind a tree. I mean, there are ways to hide, but at the same time, there are other unique ways. Let's take um, Bedford Captain Jonathan Wilson. His men got placed behind a barn belonging to the Hartwell family. Whereas other companies or units took cover behind nearby barns and outbuildings close to the road. So there you have it, folks. Farms, farm buildings. Um, you know, it's more than just one uh, farm belonging to a family. But hey, men can take cover in the buildings to where they could fire from inside and knock a soldier or two down from the opposition. There are ways to, uh, to, to disguise yourself or to protect yourself versus just always having to hide in the woods. Now, I can't just tell you all this right now. Um, I'm trying to report to you all what I can best describe per the events of what did happen on April 19th, 1775, or the day of April 19th, pardon me if I said night by accident. It may not be the most perfect, but it is the best uh, description I can come up with because we should be reminded of the fact that, yes, shots were fired, shots were heard around the world, but it was not a game of cowboys and Indians. It was not open field battle where officers were saying, present, take aim, or make take aim, ready, fire. It wasn't any of that. I mean, yes, officers on the militia side did shout, did say, take aim, fire, but I don't think they probably did that all the time. But we must 
be reminded of the fact that this battle was more of a battle of uh, survival of the fittest. It was a battle that ensued, started out as a skirmish or perhaps as a strategy of testing the waters. But once the shots were fired, there simply was no going back. And that's the way it, that's the way it was meant to be from the, from the start. Because, hey, when you are willing to sacrifice not just your life, but the cause for freedom, yes, you want to send a message to the mightiest empire in the world that you're not afraid to go head to toe, even if it might mean starting out losing seven or eight of your fellow brethren, like what happened at Lexington, there still is, there still is a light at the end of the tunnel. And perhaps John Singleton Copley's portrait of Paul Revere should remind us that Revere's unfinished work, meaning the teapot, which had that little square, uh, little um, square in the uh, on the outside of the teapot. It wasn't so much a little square, but it was a little flicker of light that was reflecting off the teapot. But yet it was shaped like a square. That little reflector of light still gave Revere a beacon of hope that perhaps the people of Massachusetts would be able to rise up and take on the mightiest empire. They would be able to respond to his call, which they did. And now we have a battle, not just a battle, but a battle that becomes a world war. So would the Hartwell farm become home to a deadly skirmish on both sides? Or should I say deadly more than one skirmish? Possibly. But we do know that after Captain Wilson ordered his men to fire behind the Hartwell farm, a flanking party of British grenadiers, and remember folks, uh, the difference between grenadiers and infantrymen, uh, light infantry soldiers are those who carry less equipment on them. They are um, more agile and able to move a lot swifter in terms of, of scouting where the enemy might be uh, might be positioned, whereas grenadiers are going to um, have more equipment on them. But nonetheless, we have a flanking party of British grenadiers who go about surprising militia forces, which led, sadly, to the killing of Captain Wilson. But beyond the Hartwell farm, British soldiers were, were lost, due to long-range firing and skirmishes around homes along the side of the road. So I think it's fair to say both sides could claim partial victories. But yet, at the same time, there was um, loss of life. Now here's um, something you all are probably wanting to know, because I mentioned it earlier, and now I'm going to give it to you all. Whom alongside his militia company were waiting along a steep, rocky hillside, which included pasture with large granite boulders? How about Lexington militia captain John Parker and the rest of his militia company? They were ready to settle a score given what happened earlier in the day. So yes, Captain Parker did um, lose about seven or eight of his um, fellow uh, militia soldiers. But these men were not ready to back down. Yes, they um, experienced loss. They grieved with their families. But yet they knew that the, that the um, mission itself had not been completely achieved. They knew that they still had unfinished business left to take care of. They knew, um, probably, they knew all along that there would be um, conflict at Concord. After all, the British were. The British finally figured out where they were going, after all the um, melee had ensued at Lexington. Thanks to um, Colonel Francis Smith, whom had saved the day on the side of the British, but of course he was the one that told the forces, as a greater whole, that hey, we're going to Concord to uh, seize the munitions. So, yes, Captain Parker's men uh, knew what was going to be ensuing at Concord, but they also knew that they still had a mission to fulfill. So that is whom is waiting 
along a steep rocky hillside. So once Colonel Smith's column, well, I should, before I get to that part, I think you all should know that uh, those who survived at Lexington, some of um, Parker's men who um, went along, I don't know how many of Parker's men from Lexington went along to Concord, but I do know that some of the men wore bloody bandages from wounds endured at Lexington. So, you know, it's one thing to have uh, been hit with blood or have blood on your shirt or perhaps have some kind of blood stain on your face. You know what? These men ought to be applauded for the fact that they're not going to... Um, run away and, and say, hey, I, I'm, not, I'm too afraid to fight. I mean, yes, what you saw at Lexington was very traumatic. But at the same time, you need to, you need to carry on the fight. You need to fight for those who lost, who lost their lives. So let's just remember, folks, that even those who survived still are carrying scars with them to the next battle. Once Colonel Smith's column of regulars got closer to where the Lexington militia were positioned, Captain Parker ordered the command to fire. And it was a very successful command because it turns out that Colonel Francis Smith got wounded in the thigh. The attack sent such shock to where British forces came to an entire halt until Major Pitcairn charged out of nowhere instructing British infantry group or rather instructing the British infantry to go upward into the rocky hillside, which did result in their driving out Parker's militia to where the Americans started taking the brunt of the casualties. So if now Captain Parker's militiamen are taking the brunt of the casualties, you probably, we probably have to wonder, was this even a good idea for Captain Parker to have done all along? I would say it was. How so? Because despite the ambush, despite our being ambushed, more regulars, it turns out, lay dead and wounded on the rocky hillside. This became known as Parker's Revenge. In other words, maybe Lexington Militia Captain uh, John Parker, he may not have hit a complete home run out of the park, but he still mustered enough courage to bring his men to Concord and lay everything on the line by, take, by wounding Colonel Francis Smith to where Colonel Smith, whom had saved the day earlier for the British, was now knocked out of the fighting. So that's where I can say Par that uh, Captain Parker truly got his revenge. Where did Major Pitcairn send his own reserve of British Marines to? The Marines were sent on a mission to clear a wooded hill known as the Bluff. However, another wooded area of unexpected suffering lie just ahead at Fisk's Hill, where another militia regiment sprang into action from the east leading them to fire upon the Marines while seeking cover behind a pile of rails. The militia forces firing led to Major Pitcairn's falling off his horse, including this also left five regulars dead. I tell you, you know, we think that it's just the soldiers that are the ones dying and getting wounded. How about the officers, folks? This is, this is just beyond 101 shock. But you know what? If you're on the American side, you, 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 your message has been sent well. Hey, we don't care what rank you British soldiers or officers are. We mean business. Yes, we may not be dressed like you all, but we know how to fight. And we've seen war four times. Now it's different because we're not on your side. And we're not afraid to take out whom we feel is worth taking out. So, Colonel um, Smith w is no longer immune. We've seen what happened to him. He was wounded in the thigh. Now, Major Pitcairn has fallen off his horse. 
I tell you, uh, the British officers are just having pure bad luck. But at the same time, um, maybe they need a taste of their medicine. Maybe they need to know for themselves that they too are not invincible. They too ought to know that the enemy before them, hey, they're not rabble. They're not peasants with pitchforks. They are smart people whom just happen to be different, but people who know how to fight a war. Even if, even if it's not something that they wanted to do from the start, they know how to fight it. And they also probably know how to finish it. Because it's like the old saying, if you're going to start something, you better find a way to finish it. What was left of the remaining British forces became desperate given Colonel Smith was wounded and Major Pitcairn now injured to, a multiple, to multiple company officers being hit. But worst of all, the British were running low on ammunition, and the Americans already are firing from every side without letting up. So yeah, if you're running low on ammunition, <laughs> it's really now, how do I say it? It's really more now about not just survival of the fittest, but how are you going to survive? How are you going to escape to where you'll still come out of this alive, knowing that ammunition is very, very low? But I also can say that even on the American side, American soldiers now are starting to become tired. They know that they've that they have achieved a, a great uh, mission, but even they are not immune from showing signs of tiredness. Despite both sides, yes, becoming tired from the fighting, did severe fighting break out amongst regulars and militiamen from a personal stance? And if so, where did the fights occur? Well, the, the first part of this uh, question is an easy answer, being yes. Part two, with regards to where the fighting broke out, of all places, the fighting broke out by wells along the road. Drinking wells, you know, remember, you know, folks, water isn't completely safe to be drinking from a river or from a pond or a creek. So if you have a well, you would be able to filter out the water to where it is much safer to, to uh, consume than it would be, say, in a uh, river or um, pond, let alone. But, you know, we also have to remember, too, that not all the soldiers have canteens with them. They don't have flasks with them. So it, it, And we don't have bottled water at this time either, too, folks. Uh, you know, whatever rations of food you might have is what you're given, but even at this point in 17, in, on April 19, 1775, I don't believe that Captain um, John Parker of the Lexington Militia or um, Major Lawami Baldwin um, would have had time to have gone about evenly distributing food portions to all their regiments. What they're more concerned about is just finding a way to strike back at the enemy, considering what happened earlier in the day. But, for, but fighting did break out by the wells along the road, and I'm going to give you a, an example of something that, to me, I thought was very powerful and, and doesn't have a happy ending for neither side. So let's pay attention and listen very carefully. At the Fisk House, I should say the Fisk House saw a British soldier running to the well for water consumption. At the same moment... A militiaman named James Hayward arrived. The regular said to militiaman James Hayward the following, You're a dead man. Hayward said the following in return, So are you. Both men fired upon each other instantly. The regular died right away, whereas Hayward was mortally wounded. Both men died side by side at the Fisk farm. You know, it's one thing to need a drink of water, but to have both, but to have a man from each side fighting over who, it wasn't a question of who was going to get the, the first drink of water. 
it was really more about who was going to out, outdo the other. But in this case, both men lost their lives, not just over water, but they lost lives over perhaps their allegiances, what they stood for, what they believed that was just cause. One man fighting to preserve the dominance of his nation's being the mightiest empire in the world, representing the elephant, the other man dying who was a subject of the king's of the king's oppressive regime that is a regime that had no boundaries, especially when it came to like say taxation without representation, quartering soldiers into people's homes without their consent shutting the port of Boston down to where people were left starving, disrupting a way of life that wasn't asked to be disrupted. So both of these men died, for, and they died, but they died believing what they thought was right. And we should also just be reminded of the fact, too, that when a man shot another man on the opposite side and they both died side by side, it should just be a reminder that, hey, not all the casualties lied on one side and all the casualties on the opposition were on the other side. So in other words, warfare, for one, is personal, and two, when you have soldiers shooting each other at point-blank up close, Seeing them side by side tells a story onto itself. And if that's not enough, I don't know what is. But yes, for the British regular to say, you're a dead man, along with the militiaman James Hayward to say, so are you. They both knew that, their, that, the, that perhaps the end of their lives were coming to a near, coming to a near end. But little did they know that it, would, that it would be at that exact spot. Maybe that was a message right there to say that, hey, we're not afraid to get too close up to you, but if it means risking our own life, then that's the price we pay. Freedom isn't free, folks. Did the British column begin to heavily unravel at Fisk's Hill. Yes, the remaining officers whom had not been hit lost control of their men to where some soldiers sat down by the side of the road where they waited to meet their ultimate or inevitable fate, being death. In other words, they, these soldiers had lost their, pretty much lost their sanity, perhaps. They lost their true purpose that day. They, they were so blown away at the fact that a ragtag, in their eyes, a ragtag group of men whom they didn't think were the most educated of men somehow had gotten the upper hand on them, not just 101, but beyond 101 to where they came in all directions, inflicting loss, inflicting wounds, inflicting, disrupting their way of traditional style warfare fighting to where to where what started out as just a, a skirmish at Lexington now erupts into a world war. The British troops ran in despair. Well, I should say ran in desperation to where they weren't fleeing as units, but instead individuals. The officers did everything they could, that is, those officers who had not been shot, they did everything they could to try their best to um, get their, to get their um, men under control to where they could, um, where an attempt was made to get them to turn around one last time to fire at um, militiamen forces. But the results were trivial, I should say minimal. You know, it is easy to think that all of the uh, British soldiers whom were are fighting at this time came from England. But let me ask you all this question. Where did a majority of the British regulars hail from? Was it England? 
Was it Scotland or was it Ireland? The answer is Ireland. And I, you know, we should be reminded of the fact that, um, that especially at this time in 1775, but even before then, that the people of Ireland are very um, hostile towards England. More often than not, um, England had treated Ireland perhaps maybe in the same manner that she had treated her 13 subjects after the French and Indian War ended. Many of the people from Ireland believed that what happened at Concord was another English war and an Irish fight. Why is that important to tell? Well, for one, Ireland was under England's control, just like Scotland was under England's uh, domain. England was financing this war. But at the same time, they didn't have to use a majority of their own men, that is, from their own native land. But they had to use men from outside England, being Ireland, to perform the dirty work, given that the people of Ireland bore deep resentment to the crown. Did the people of Ireland have a say, have a proper say in uh, parliamentary affairs? No. Did the people in colonial America, being the 13 colonies, England's subjects, did they, were they given a proper, um, proper representation to have, um, to have a, to have equal say over um, proposals that would, would deem to be unfair, like taxation without representation, aka Stamp Act? No. So you can see a correlation here, folks, of how England is hiring out soldiers from Ireland to, per, to serve in the king's army. And 80% of the, his, most historians know that about 80% of uh, soldiers fighting in the king's army are um, lower class, um, come from the lower ranks of English society. A fair number of them are ex-convicts. And the best way to keep the ex-convicts in line is to have them uh, perform in the serve in the military, which is perhaps a good thing to keep them out of further trouble. But at the same time, 80% of these uh, soldiers really don't have a say in anything. The other 20% come from well-to-do families. Hey, General Thomas Gage is in that elite 20%. So... Yes, it's one thing for England to finance a war, but to use men not native to England to go about performing the dirty work? Yeah, that's why the people of Ireland bore deep resentment to the crown. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm back on the air again, we're going to talk about the retreat from Concord. This time, the actual retreat. That was the plan all along. But it got halted because of all those ambush attacks at Miriam's Corner and on the outskirts of Miriam's Corner. And I will tell you this right now, folks. We will do a two-part series on the retreat. I looked into it and I said to myself, hey, we do need to do a two-part series on this because it would be very hard to cover it all in one particular segment. Thank you again, as always, for letting me share what I enjoy most. And thank you all for listening and for being such avid supporters. I look forward to being back on the air again uh, next time. And when we do, when, and when I'm on the air, we'll be discussing part one of the retreat from Concord. Take care for now and stay safe.